Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Tim, have we talked about my experiences at Jewish summer camp at all? We have never talked about Jewish summer camp. I can guarantee you that. And all the travels, all the time, all the time we spent. So a significant part of, of my growing up was I went to a camp called Camp Ramah in New England. And I think this is traditional for at least Jewish families that I hung out with and, and uh, was aware of, that they came to, kids would, would go away to summer camp for months from ages 10 through like 16. I would go to Western Massachusetts and sleepaway camp for eight weeks. Man, that's kind of an East Coast thing. For us, summer camp is like four days. Right? No, yeah, it was it, it, it was crazy. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, I, I was saying this to you earlier. I could probably start my own podcast just on summer camps and everyone's experiences and even just with, with Jews or non-Jews, whatever it is, but eight weeks, right? And the tradition, one of the traditions that I loved and one of the reasons I kept going back was one day every summer, your camp, my camp, Camp Ramah in New England would play against Camp Ramah in the Berkshires in softball, basketball, swimming, tennis, various sports. One day you flip-flop yours. One day they come to your house. One, one year you go to theirs. And it's just amazing. I mean, the whole camp goes, they bus in, you know, four, four uh, coach buses. And it's like, you know, you, I get the chills just even thinking back to it. Wow. Anyways, my second to last summer, I was captain on the softball team. And we had never won at Berkshires. I think this series started in 1969. And we'd never won. Uh, on the road. I think we lost like 13 times. <laughs> so the hopes weren't high. We'd lost the year before. Long story short, we went there and we won. And for me, you know, I'm not a terrible athlete, but I'm not the greatest athlete in the world. It's definitely one of the crowning achievements to look back and see all those people on the other side upset that they lost and that we'd completely changed everything. The, the prestige was gone and uh, we left with the crown. And what does that have to do with today? Yeah, I'm right? waiting to see how you pull this together. <laughs> Why am I babbling on and on about this? Well, I reached out to my good friend, probably my closest friend from the team, Brad Friedman, and we talked about it a little bit. And I was like, man, you know, I played for three years and, and that was the, the weakest team. That was not the most talented team. The other two teams were significantly stronger, but we were able to put it together and go to their house and win. And both of us attributed this a little bit to the coach, the guy, he's, he's actually like running for Congress right now. Ben Siegel, great, great guy, Massachusetts, like, like a, you know, awesome for us to be around it. But we were a team. You know what I mean? It was, we, we were, we, he molded us into winners and we embraced it and we were a team. And he said, there's going to be points where things are going bad. You're going to be losing, but we're going to be there in the end and we're going to celebrate. We're not going to celebrate too much and embarrass them because we can celebrate for the rest of our life. Yeah. And which you are apparently. 25 years later. So that's, yep. I guess, to tie it back. This happened 25 years ago, like last week. Okay. So to bring it to Mr. Corey Scott, first of all, Corey was a, a great athlete. He played high school basketball with some future pros in various sports. Uh, and he's a very good friend of mine. So it's it's fun for me to have him on. But he's also, Tim, he's a winner. He's, he's competitive. He's transitioned to being a very focused sales leader. And I think that he and his story about Red Dog Systems their rise, their revenue growth, and eventual acquisition by Inveris is a story about some persistence, but a lot of winning and team-oriented play along the way. So that's where I'm tying this in to this particular session. And with that, Tim, why don't you introduce Corey? Well, so I met Corey, 
back in the Energy Navigator days, I think you may have been the one to introduce us, actually. Yep. And, and I remember with Red Dog, Energy Navigator had some sort of a partnership with Red Dog around AFE Navigator and AFE Link. So we got to know each other a little bit and we did some joint things together. But Corey, uh, you're what, from Dallas, Fort Worth area, uh, school, Oklahoma State. I guess rather than me kind of do that little bio, what, uh, why don't you run down your bio and how you kind of got into the industry? First off, guys, thanks for having me on. We would have had bigger problems if this was going to go on another month or two and I wasn't the next. <laughs> but no, it was, it was interesting. So I grew up Dallas Fort Worth area, town called South Lake. And um, I'm sure a lot of people in Texas area know them from their sports still today. And probably back when I was there in school, um, as every year goes on, I feel like I'm, I'm dating myself on it. So I went there and then I went to Oklahoma State, graduated 2007. And really kind of at the time, I'll say my junior year, when you got to start looking for internships and your parents are talking to you about, hey, you just can't come home and work the same type of job. Yeah. You got to start preparing for the future. Internships are What you going to do? What you going to do? What are you going to do? And so I was in a finance role or my degree was trying to work towards finance. And uh, at the time, so you got to think this was 2006. At the time, I mean, today we know about all this, all the players in Oklahoma City and Tulsa and how they've grown. But at the time in 2006, ConocoPhillips had a, a really strong hold on OU and OSU in getting really kind of the stronger accounting and finance folks out of those programs. And so from an internship perspective, they were kind of far and beyond everybody else. And so it was really kind of, hey, if you can get towards that type of internship, that'll give you great exposure. They have great benefits. They pay their interns well. And you got to think like as a 20-year-old, you know, college kid, you're just trying to find a way to get an internship on your resume, but yeah. how do I also get a little, you know, money for next year going to my senior year, right? And so that was really kind of my mindset. I had no exposure to oil and gas. Like my mom comes from the medical mm. the medical industry. My dad is finance treasury for the uh, Federal Reserve. So I didn't really have any oil and gas background, but going to school in Oklahoma, obviously things kind of started perking up a little bit during the college time. I still didn't know at the at really at the end of the day much about the oil and gas industry. I just knew this was a good company, kind of like a Fortune 5, Fortune 10 company. Hey, this would be good exposure. So I went and got my internship there. And the way ConocoPhillips had laid out at the time is, hey, we'll do it. It's almost like, yes, it's your internship, but it's a three-month interview. And if we mm. if we like you, we're going to basically yeah. offer you something right before you know career fairs and everything else happens. So they offered me a job, even though I was going into my senior year. And to myself, I'm like, hey, they have the best benefits, have the best pay, all that stuff. So to me, I didn't think much of it beyond that other than I've got job security coming out of school, right? And I don't have to stress about it in my senior year where like some of my roommates didn't have any of that stuff on their radar at the time. Mm. So that's initially how I found myself coming into the industry. And of course, my perspective is totally different now. So it was really kind of just a little bit of luck, a little bit of just kind of stumbling into a job. But, you know, ConocoPhillips, they had a good program with it. And that's how I kind of rode myself into it all coming from Oklahoma State. So yeah, interesting. So one of the things that, you know, well, first of all, Conoco and Phillips, both of those companies, their pre predecessors, Conoco and Phillips had their beginnings in Oklahoma. You know, Phillips was in Bartlesville and, and the well-known city of Ponca City Ponca. in Northern Oklahoma. That's where Conoco kind of was made their hay for a while. So it's interesting they kind of have those those schools lined up. And also, just to kind of dovetail, it is interesting the oil and gas industry is well known for these internships that, you know, and I did the same thing. You know, I had three of them. So there were three long-term interviews just trying to get, 
you know, out of school and, but they pay very well. I mean, I hear of internships on the radio and things like that. And it's, it's free. The guy has to go get coffee and you're not, you're working just to get the note on the resume. But, you know, like with ConocoPhillips with you, Corey, it's, it is a big interview and it's real money. I mean, you can go live for half a semester after summer with those, right? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, they, what was great about them at the time, even for interns, you're there for what, three months, three and a half months. And they even allowed you into some of their stock programs, even just as an intern, right? So they really treated you like an employee, even though wow. it was a short stint. So you were coming out being paid as if, what would your rate be from like a new hire perspective? They brought all the benefit and compensation to what they would do with their employees into their interns. And even though it was short term, I think it was, it was well played by them because it really got you thinking at a young age to see what that world is going to be like on the other side. But it's not just about a paycheck. You got to be thinking bigger and beyond that, even though that's hard to do at, you know, 19, 20 and 21. Right? <laughs> yeah. But well, like, right. but they did not, it, you know, and they, 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 they locked people in when they got people to see that. And then they, you know, post the internship, they could, they could present. Well, and, and you're now back at Oklahoma state waving the Conoco flag for, you know, another, you know, for your whole senior year, everybody knows, well, Hey, they're, that's something good. So it's, it's not bad for their own recruiting for future years to have you on campus, you know, already waving the flag, right? No doubt. See, I was far less mature. When when I was 21, I remember people were like, you, you need to start looking at internships. And I, I was not a very good student, probably one of the dumber kids in my class. But then, uh, sorry, I mean, I'm supposed to say I had different skills. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I remember going through like, like job boards and all these postings. And the only, I applied for two internships. One of them was doing tours at Fenway Park, which got 20 million applicants. Oh, and yeah. they took like three people. And the other one was like working on a sailboat where they interviewed me and didn't give me the job. But I realized uh, shortly after, I'm like, man, I better figure something out because <laughs> like what interests you? I'm like, I don't know. I guess nothing interests me. What do you want me to say? I want to do something. Anyways. So Corey, you got the internship, right? And you just assume you're going to go out there and you're going to work for Conoco uh, for the next 20 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you think you kind of watch your parents, right? As you start getting that age and you realize, okay, real world's around the corner. You kind of watch what your parents do and you start paying attention yeah. to it, whether you don't want to give your parents credit for that or not. And my parents, you know, like my dad, when he's worked for the Federal Reserve, he's been there for 30 plus years. My mom, when she's been in the medical side, you know, she's, she's kind of jumped to different, to different companies over the last handful of years. But for the most part, it was more that conservative approach, you know, long-term buy-in, you know, work and show loyalty and all that stuff. So to me, it was like, yeah, I guess I'll go to Conoco. I'll buy into their long-term plans. Here's how we take care of employees. So initially you're coming in like, I guess, you know, do as much as you can, put your best foot forward, but this is how I should approach it. But yeah, as you start really becoming your own person, you come out of college and you start learning things as your own individual, you really start kind of quickly pointing together how things are going to be. But now let's be very honest with ourselves. And I mean no disrespect to Conoco Phillips. I do come from the Dallas Fort Worth area and I've always kind of been more of a city guy. So when I had to go to Bartlesville, Oklahoma yeah. as a single person at, you know, twenty one, twenty two years old, I'm trying to tell myself these things, but then I'm quickly realizing, man, if I have to stay here ten years as a single person, I don't know how this is ultimately <laughs> gonna work out. So, you know, you do run into those types of challenges and you gotta start figuring things out for yourself. But, you know, I, I do give that internship and that new hire program they put in together when I started as a new hire. Everything else. They gave me all the opportunity and uh, they did put their best foot forward with new hires and interns. So I give them all the credit for that. 
So the nightlife in Bartlesville is not hopping. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Look, I think when I was there, man, we would do these Thursday night like flag football games. So it was like yeah. living your intramural dream beyond oh, yeah. college type thing. And, you know, you'd go celebrate afterwards at like a rib crib or a Chili's. And, uh, <laughs> so you, you know, it's like, but it's so Oklahoma with it, right? And then there was like uh. kind of your two bars to go to. And I think one was kind of like a biker bar. And the other was just kind of a bar with a couple of pool tables, right? So it was like, <laughs> hey, you worked. Hey, I get, I give him credit though. It was like college, right? You didn't at Oklahoma State. It was that college town. You had to make the most of what you had, right? Yeah. So like, hey, you, you you just had to view the life that way. But you know what was great about that though is because they did at the time. I don't know today, but at the time they had a really big new hiring process. They had a big new hiring process and internships. So we had a lot of people my age there. And they yeah. all thought the same way. So, you know, everybody knew they had to make the most with the individuals, more so than just all these, you know, sports venues or bar venues around you. And uh, we really did. So it brought like camaraderie really well with all the mm. new buyers and we all kind of still stay in touch. So that part was cool looking back now. But yeah, at the time you're like, man, this, this can't sustain for a few more years. <laughs> <laughs> give me some more, give me some more, uh, some more traffic lights. Yeah, it reminds place. me of the Joe Sinnott episode where we're he's down in South Louisiana for his coming out of college career from Notre yeah. Dame to South Louisiana. Yeah, no, I mean, that, so Corey, then you and I met in 2009. I distinctly remember it because I really felt like an outsider at that point, or at least was was starting to figure it out. I was fairly young, one of the younger people at my company, and then I met you, and you're like decades younger. So I'm like, what the hell is going? On? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we were sitting. Uh, I think we were sitting at the bar at um, the Ocean Air, and we just started talking. Started talking about basketball. Realized we were both big sports fans. Hit it off, and ironically, Tim, Corey, and I were both at the same Red Sox playoff game in 2013, and didn't know it until the next day. I want to audit our podcast to see. If the Red Sox have made it into every podcast. They've also made it into last place. In as, long, as, as long as Jeremy's on it, that's the case. But I'll never forget <laughs> it because this was right as when uh, Ortiz, right? Poppy was saying yep. it was right after Boston Strong, the whole Boston um, oh, okay. situation. Yep. My wife and I were doing our first year wedding anniversary up there. I said, hey, let's just – we drew out of a hat like where we want to go for our first year anniversary. Well, we ended up drawing – kind of that Boston area. And what we did was we kind of went through just uh, kind of through the Cape and everything else. Nice. And we kind of just went to check things out. And it was awesome. Long story short though, Jeremy, real story, how we got there. I didn't know research on it. And I was like, well, let's just drive through and we'll go to province, province town. And like, oh, we go and people are like, Oh, you're going, you're going to P town. Right. And everyone just say that. I'm like, yeah, but you say it with a smile. Right. So we'll kind of leave it at that. And we get there the first night, and I was like, oh, my good Lord. I was like, Ashley, we can't do two nights here. We can't do two nights. But I said, here's the good part. We can drive back to Boston. We can get there in like two hours or kind of that time frame. I said, and they're playing in the playoffs. It's their first game. And so, like, I was like, we'll do one night because we're already kind of here towards the evening. Let's just get through this. And I drive back the next morning, and – uh you know, we go, we just kind of go hit up a sports bar and then we went there and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like so cool. And then, um, yeah, you and I texted like what that same week and you're like, holy yeah. cow, I had no idea. So true story. But I, I always remember what was happening at that time. <laughs> yeah. 
No, that that is. I actually do remember. You're like, yeah, I'm pumped, man. We're going to Provincetown. I'm like, that's a little strange, but that's okay. Like, it's beautiful. Everyone raves about it. But yeah, sure. <laughs> I shudder. I shudder to think what what Tom Brenneman would have to say about it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm just sitting here shaking my head. I know you guys can't see it, but that that is one of my uh, or like probably do a little more research next time, Corey. Well, then next time, like text me when maybe when you're there, and I might also happen to be there randomly because it's not like an everyday occurrence that either one of us is there, but just happened to be that day. Anyways, so the Red Dog. So you, you're a, a young guy. We met at a and <laughs> this is going to sound really exciting. We met at an oil and gas accountants conference. NAPAC. NAPAC. The North American whatever. My first NAPAC, 2009. Corey and I met. We hit it off. You know, start spending some more time. But you were at Red Dog at that point. And why don't you explain Red Dog, some of their Calgarian roots, how you got over there, and and, um, a little bit about the company. Yeah, so I'll try not to be too long-winded, even though it's got got a good story. But like when I started at ConocoPhillips as a new hire, I worked in the joint interest billing department. And at that time in 2007, you got to think at that time, companies are just kind of coming around, especially larger companies coming around to, you know, electronic solutions for you know, in that time or for that particular department, e-invoicing, right? Jib invoicing. And so I come in and they're like, okay, this is the college kid that um, let's task him with this first project of, hey, we've got all these Jib invoices coming in through the mail and we hand code them manually. But now we've heard of these products out there and Red Dog being one of them uh, with a product called JibLink. They've got some operators. Can we use that application to automate some of our Jib invoicing? So I'm okay. Like, okay, sure. Tackle this. So I work on that for probably a year and a bit, and I'm working with a gentleman who was one of the founders, Ian Stoneberg. And so he and I are just staying in touch. Of course, Ian's smart enough to know, like, don't just put me straight to support lines. He's like, hey, ConocoPhillips, big target company. This is huge revenue stream. Like, I'll stay close to this one. So working with him for a year, well, of course, as Red Dog Systems is expanding and growing their business, he reaches out to me after a year saying, hey, you've obviously known the product, but you know the accounting piece of it, just letting you know we're kind of hiring or whatever. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of interesting. But I'm thinking in my mind, like, okay, again, back to that 22-year-old, like, single, is Bartlesville really the home for me now that I've been here for a while, um, long-term? And I'm like, hey, I've got to get back. I was looking for any opportunity to get back to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. He was in Houston. And I said, absolutely, right? So I took a huge leap of faith, leaving Fortune 10 company. This, by the way, was at the end of uh, 2008. So when, yeah, that's the big downturn year. Massive downturn year. I think yeah, my parents yeah. coming from that conservative thing were like, we support you, son, but you sure about this, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I'm like, look, it, you know, you've got to put yourself, you've got to do the hard work. You've got to put yourself in some opportunity and take some risk along the way. And you maybe get right. lucky and then sometimes things are going to fail. But at least I knew if I was going to fail, I had time in my life to like, figure things out, but I'll be in Houston and we'll figure things out from there. I wasn't too concerned about that. So leave Conoco then, come join the Red Dog Squad. It's just Ian Stoneberg and I at the time in the U.S. office. There's there's a handful of people, probably 10 or so up in Calgary. And so that's how I got to be part of Red Dog, Jeremy. And so, and then from there, it really just kind of like everything started dawning on me, right? So how, how does Red Dog Systems kind of work? And and so you you go from this, you know, tens of thousands of employees, corporate culture, Fortune 10 type company to essentially mm. a startup, right? Like, let's be honest, I'm so naive to really know the big differences. You just, 
I'm just living the day of seeing the change, right? Like all of a sudden now I, I can't just pick up the phone and call IT support to help with my login, right? <laughs> you got to figure it out. Like you got your fold up desk and, and away you go. But man, did I learn so much that I think I would never do anything differently. In fact, it would probably be harder for me personally to go work for like, you know, a large corporation that way if I were to go start again, right? Knowing that I've seen both sides. Because, but you do, but you but, do. But I do now, right? So, but I mean, if you go back with it, right? Because you just learn so many things and you just, you just start, you have an appreciation that's at a different level, right? And uh, you just got more accountability on yourself and for things that you always took for granted with bigger companies, I guess, to it. So it was interesting how that kind of transpired. And then Red Dog Systems as a whole has just had a unique position. And Jeremy, as you know, through our relationship, you know, how it kind of managed the business of Red Dog Systems versus probably a lot of people. And a lot of people who knew Red Dog Systems knew that, right? It mm -hmm. was just a differently, you know, it was ran differently than a lot of other companies. No question. Um, I think I want to take, I want to base the conversation just a little bit. The JIB joint interest billing, I, I think the three of us kind of understand that, but I, it's a little bit different than what I, you know, from an engineer's perspective, they may not understand, you know, what actually happens. And from a, certainly anyone outside the industry or international, we now have international listeners. What is so unique about joint interest billing and, you know, kind of take the, there's the old way of it. And the U.S. and Canada are a little bit different in that there's, you've got a well and there might be 30 partners on that well. And so I don't, can you walk us through why is it so difficult and why is why is a system like like energy link needed for something like that that's a really good question and we still get asked this by a lot of companies in the industry cool. and it really comes back to what you said tim on just the way the oil and gas businesses ran in the lower 48 and canada and there's just working interest partners, whether those are individuals or oil and gas companies that are involved, where when you look at it internationally, for the most part, you have the governments involved that pretty much have most of the interest. They don't have, for one, the depth of non-operators or working interest owners in the wells. There's usually just a few people and their reporting requirements are significantly different than what's required in the US and in Canada. That's yep. really what it comes down to. What you find internationally is people can say, well, I've got this massive well in the shore off of Brazil or in the North Sea, but hey, I've only got like four partners. One of them is the government. And we're just able to send like an Excel file with like one or two rows in that Excel file of the data. And that's all they need to report on. When yeah. you get in the US and Canada, it's you know significantly more detailed, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, so it expands out. So not only that, and then you think of the number of wells that are occurring in Canada and US, right? Especially US. So whether that's, joint interest billing statements or revenue statements, the number of those statements just pile up, right? So when you look at it now from this perspective, how do I meet my month in accounting? At the same time, how am I able to get all this data into my accounting system without error? And how do I automate this process, right? All these things we hear about with different software applications in today's time. But when you think about it 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of that there. There was a handful of companies doing stuff. That's true. But that was there, right? And so people had to start thinking, how do I get this in there? But at the same time, how do I capture the right amount of detail that will impact downstream? So if operations, yeah. if engineers, if FNPA, and you know, how does that impact my financial income statements when, when we're recording information, we need to make sure there's no issues or incorrect, you know, hand keying information that goes into sure. for it. 
so you, you just got to find a way for that, and that's and that's really what it was trying to achieve. So I would say that was the main difference between what happened in U.S. and Canada versus the rest of the world when it comes. So to in, in you know, just to kind of pre Energy Link and things like this, I mean, we're effectively using the postal service just to continuously send tickets. You know, some guy spends, uh, you know, a thousand dollars on a barrel of mud, and now you've got a you've got thirty interest partners. You've got to send the invoice if you're the operator to 30 yeah. different companies and wait for this to come back, if it's that's an right. AFE, you've got to get approval by from 30 different companies and get it back. And that's really, I think to boil it down, that's really the value is we want to automate all that and, and take out all the sources of error between these 30 different partners that are on the well. Did I get that basically right, Corey? You got it right. And, and let's also not add, <laughs> let's add something here that like I, I, I do chuckle about. In an electronic world, especially in a SaaS world where you can load a file and send it to your to your your, your partners electronically, that can happen instantly. Right. I always love talking to people who are like, "Nope, don't trust that technology," but we believe in the postal system. And I mean nothing in the postal system, but <laughs> do you mean to tell me that there's never one piece of mail that ever gets lost or gets to a wrong address or something? And by the way, how long does it take to get there? <laughs> and right? the thirty dollars oh, yeah. it costs to send that you know FedEx packet. The business case is immense. So. I want to talk a little bit about culture. And and one of the things that always impressed me about Red Dog and why I think all of my attempts to lure you away yeah. were unsuccessful at various different organizations is the culture. And you, ta- you mentioned Ian Stoneberg. He just seems like an awesome dude. I know it's different when you work for somebody, but I'm sure that goes all the way to the top. The Howdens are great guys. So tell me a little bit what the culture was like uh, maybe the Canadian influence and and how you'll take some of those, I guess, skills that you learned in culture building there. Yeah, I'm thinking about maybe I just write a book on it, and that way I can get paid for it, Jeremy. But I guess I'll, start a podcast. Yeah, I was saying start a podcast and uh, give a couple cliff notes here. I mean, this is when I you know came over from Conoco, and things just became very apparent to me. And at the time, you got to think kind of that mid 2000 range. You know, there were SaaS-based companies out there, but there weren't a ton at the time, whether oil and gas or not. And they had, as Red Dog Systems, kind of a, just a different approach than probably your standard way of approaching companies. A lot of people talk about culture, doing the right thing, but I think these guys actually really defined it. And yeah. I would say, you know, culture really starts at the top. And even though they were a smaller company, right, you know, I think over time we were to grow ourselves to about 25 to 30 folks, it still could be scaled out across larger. You know, I think there was good understanding of empowering your people, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I think there's a key to that. I think empowerment with boundaries is very key. But I think if you give them empowerment, there, there's definitely a buy-in there. I'd mm-hmm. probably say at the high level, there was one thing that was said to me that I never kind of really forget that long-term buy-in is built by long or long-term success is built by long-term buy-in and the team at red dog really found a way to do that and make a lot of the people that work there at red dog systems not just being paid but they became owners of the company right Mm, and so equity yeah but but i mean there's there's a difference to that too of just um you know yes you had skin the game in different ways but but they took it to a next level that really kept it there. Like if I've been here 12 years, I would wow. say over the 20 years there, which is young, right? So I'm 35. It's probably not the people my age that are, you know, 35 that said they've been in the same place for, you know, 10 plus years, right? I'm probably meeting the millennial difference there. But, you know, I think there was maybe two or three people that left 
for whatever the reasons were at, you know, at the time. But you think over 20 years, if that's the only type of churn you have, whether that was their own case, that doesn't really happen with a lot of companies. That right. is very impressive. Oh, yeah, very it's unusual, impressive. super unusual, especially in an industry like this, which when things are good, pays very well. So the temptation to, to chase something is, is going to be there. It's not like you had a shortage of opportunity uh, as well as the other A players over there. Well, there's, there's two or three guys, downturns in the middle of that time frame too. Yeah, you guys, you guys saw the big picture though. And, and I like that. No, Corey, that's, that's a, some really good insight. And I feel like you sort of took the torch, right? The Canadian guys came down at first. Let's, let's help establish this. And then it became this American company, right? And you guys became your own uh, personality and, and entity sort of independent of, of Canada. Definitely. And, you know, but that started with Ian, right? He, had to, he started growing the U.S. office. So I was his first hire. And then we hired a handful of folks after that. And, and that's just kind of how it worked, right? Like, and you guys know personally, and there's all kinds of stories, it was nothing against the Canadians. I mean, it was just constant flying down. It was the Canadian way versus U.S. way, and sometimes that was looked at a little interesting. So when mm. we built a when we built a U.S. base, right, it just had that U.S. establishment, and I think it probably just had a better, um, you know, approach when we were dealing with customers. Hey, we have a corporate office here in Houston. Here's this. Here's the people from kind of this area, and it was just kind right. of more relatable. I mean, you just know how the industry works that way. But that means and takes nothing away from, you know, Dave and others coming down from Canada definitely to start it. And that's just how it is when you're, you know, you're in a that's, startup position. But, you know, that's how we're able to grow. I mean, very similar to how Tim and I met with Navigator coming down to the U.S. being was, a Calgary company. I was going to say the parallels are very interesting. And one of the things that we didn't do well, and maybe it was my fault, was really navigating those differences between the Canadian culture and the yeah. U.S. culture. They're different. It, it's, it's hard to imagine, but it really is you know, there's a certain aggression level that you're expected to have in the U.S., but in in Calgary, it's not quite pr- that that aggressive, competitive approach right. doesn't play the same way. So it is interesting that that you need that different one, and then maintaining the culture between the two places. That's the that's the hard part, right? Yeah, that's good point. and and don't get it, you know, twisted, Tim. Like you have to have the teams, regardless of where they are at geographically bought into kind of your your core values as a company and how you really instill that you will build subcultures throughout it that's just natural mm. right but we were a tight enough company and working cross border with each other that we were able to keep subcultures fair enough but they didn't grow enough where we created two companies within right, right. i think that's a bit of a challenge but we were able to do that and i think like look you know jeremy this kind of goes back to your sports stuff right I think what they were able to do is find the right people to put on the right seat on the bus for yeah. it all, but they were role players, right? Like you can't all be LeBron James, even though LeBron James has an effect on every play, both on defense and offense, he's got players around him that he can't win the game or the championships right. without those guys playing their key part. So you got to have customer support being, you almost got to put customer support ahead of everybody else. In what right. we were doing, you got to have product, you know, at the same lines. And by the way, being tied at the hip with sales. So when you're doing all that, even across border, those things naturally permeate through everybody that allows for that, that culture to stay together as one, as one focus. So that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I love your passion. Go ahead, Tim. You got, I was going to say that it was great to hear that, you know, from a small team perspective, but obviously things have changed now. Enverse drilling info, that whole transition. How is that? transition affected that culture that you guys had built 
Jeez, it's almost like we'd have to start a different episode. You know what I mean? Like there are so many questions. We haven't gone to any of the other ticky tack stuff that we like to do every episode, but this is an important question. Yes. And uh, Corey, hopefully I stalled enough to let you think through your response without getting any sort of legal issues with the monster behemoth organization you now work for. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) I'll let you talk about it. Well, yeah. I mean, now we could... Guys, I could be the first person that goes on back-to-back podcasts. I think you maybe did that with Marcia, so I might be I might be wrong there. Look, I'll give Inveris a lot of credit. What they understand with their acquisitions and a lot of these SaaS-based companies they're acquiring is they understand, and I totally agree with it, it is the people and the intellectual capital behind the technology that really drives everything. And they can't lose that. And they need that to not just succeed for the continued growth of that product that they support, whether it's selling or product or development or support, but also just what are we trying to do as a bigger company? But they'll never lose that. So they understand, look, if if we acquired Red Dog Systems, we want your culture to stay there. Okay, we have, here's Inveris' culture. Here's how we do that. But at the end of the day, we're not asking you to relocate. We want you to stay where you're at. Here's what we're expecting as our company. But at the same time, they're respectful of, of what we were able to build and how do we leverage that into their success, right? I mean, you have to say credit, you know, give credit where credit's due. You know, I think Red Dog Systems, what they did with Energy Link was a very uh, superior product in the market, very well known for their customer support and their product deliverables. And, and Inveris didn't want to try to fix something that wasn't broken. Right. Most companies try to, though. I mean, because you're talking about a financial transaction of some sort happens. So the really like the the power or the control does start to shift, and and that takes a little bit of time, right? But you're absolutely right. The persona of you guys, and I think your NPS score, which people don't really even know a ton about, like for W's is very high. Yours is even higher for Red Dog, which is impressive, right? There's not many in the space that are there. Usually they're in the negatives. So that's like customer satisfaction or approval rating from your your clients. But no, I mean, I, I think that's a that's an interesting observation. And it tells me that they have smart business leaders to be able to say, you know what? Some of these companies we acquire, the tech is great. They don't have the sales resources or they have great people. The tech maybe could be better placed here. But they really saw with you guys, these guys are rock stars. Let's let's let them roll where they roll. But this was really, really fun. And uh, Corey, you're coming back, my man. Yeah, we could definitely make a whole nother episode. It'd be easy. Easy. Well, this, this was good, man. And I feel like I start talking with you guys next thing you know, it's, it's the end of the podcast. So I ramble <laughs> on too much with it. But hey, I know it's Friday. No way. No way. Oh, this was awesome. Man. Or maybe, maybe it was intentional. Maybe it was just to be a cliffhanger. That way you got to bring me back on because you know I've been prying you. Once you get your podcast, I want to come on multiple times. No doubt. Yeah. And appreciate your time today, man.